a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts, Josh and Joe. Hello, and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm Josh, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe. What's up, Josh? And our producer, Steve. Hey, guys. Before we get started, I want to apologize about my voice during the episode. The day of the recording, I was battling a bit of unexpected laryngitis and had little to no voice during the course of the day. Joe, Steve, and I had several conversations throughout the day about whether or not we should postpone, but since our guest, Jesse Thorne, is a very busy person, I decided to power through. And all three of us are really glad that I did, because we think this conversation you are about to hear is one of the best we've had so far, and we hope you'll agree. However, we do suggest that you listen to this episode when not in the presence of children, as there is a fair amount of adult language used. And now, on to our conversation with Jesse Thorne. Today, we are honored to be joined by Jesse Thorne. Jesse is the host of the NPR show Bullseye, the founder of the podcasting network Maximum Fun, one of the most preeminent and respected people in the podcasting world, and most importantly, the father of three children. Jesse, welcome to Dad Rocks. Thank you. A little presumptuous about the importance. I mean... (laughs) It's really hard to say. I'm really important in podcasting. So. Well, you know, in, in, in our worlds, you're you're pretty well known. So that we and we respect you. My children are ambivalent at best about me as well. So we have to take that into account. <laughs> so as we just mentioned, you have a lot going on between work and home life. Um, how do you actually manage it all? And is this how you envision parenthood? Wow. Yeah. I mean. Um, None of it is what I envisioned. None of it is managed. I would say before the pandemic, I think sort of what happened is before we had our first kid, my wife went to law school, graduated from law school, and came to find that she did not want to be a lawyer. So she came to work with me. And at the time, Maximum Fund, my podcasting company, was me... (laughs) Teresa, when she was able, and my wife, and um, a friend of mine from college who lived in Chicago about two days a Mm -hmm. week. He lived in Chicago seven days a week, but he worked for me about two days a week. (laughs) And um, what sort of happened is Teresa figured out she didn't want to be a lawyer. We had a baby. All of those things kind of happened in sequence. And as it turned out, this person who I expected was going to support me Uh, which is say my lawyer wife ended up uh, becoming a full-time parent or a mostly full-time parent. So my wife does a lot of the parenting heavy lifting around the house in ordinary circumstances. She also, you know, she's co-hosted a podcast for a long time and she, she wrote a book, but primarily she is the parent. She also helps me with kind of administrative oversight of the company. She's sort of the, not not a day-to-day person, but she's there when we have high-level meetings. 
Gotcha. She's the um, one who can help with the law and everything. Yeah. She, we, <laughs> she and I have very different skills. Uh, she has a, something called executive functioning, which I lack almost entirely. <laughs> so basically, in, in an ordinary situation, it's kind of like a relatively traditional, you know, 1950s family. I go to work or at least go to the office in my house and Teresa is here and she's coordinating, getting kids back and forth to school and so on and so forth. Since the pandemic, all three of my kids who are now 10, 8, and 4 have had pretty significant struggles around pandemic stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Zoom school and mental health and so on and so forth. And so in this past 18 months or so, that situation has turned into a situation where both of us are close to being full-time parents, or at least were until school started this year. Right. You know, I, I live in Los Angeles where there was no, there was almost no in-person school until this yeah. fall. So mm-hmm. there was a two half days a week at the very end of my eight-year-old school year. So now I'm like trying to remember what it's like to work. Like I was, <laughs> I was really um, dealing with actual important stuff so much in the past 18 months that I was just like scrambling. It would be like, you know, I host an NPR interview show and in the past it would be like I spend a day preparing for an interview in addition to being prepared for it by my life, you know, like it'll mm-hmm. be a cast member of Archer and I've seen every Archer just because I like to watch <laughs> Archer. But then, and still to some extent now, it got to the point where it was like, okay, I have 35 minutes. I interviewed David Letterman with, I think, less than an hour of prep time. Wow. wow. And that was like my all-time number one guest and there was no way not to do it that way. Like it wasn't yeah. a matter of, like it was a, not to get too far into it, but there were safety issues involved. And so like it was... Uh, it was like, wow, well, here I go, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Was it more like a fan led heart led interview then? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I did once read a biography of David Letterman, like a pretty serious biography. Like I, I know things about David Letterman. Mm-hmm. I certainly had imagined through my life what it would be like if I ever got David Letterman on my show. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what I didn't imagine it would be like me having half an hour to prepare before I (laughs) connected with him via video conference at his ranch in Montana. Oh my God. Crazy. But it's been monumentally difficult, but they've gone okay. I mean, in, in general, I think I had a life before I had kids where my work was mostly stuff that I liked, though I didn't want to be a business person, especially much, but it was mostly stuff that I liked. And I, you know, I just worked 60 hours a week and it was fine. You know, it was hard, but it was fine. And after having kids, it has been a constant struggle of how to, how to figure out how to do, how to balance those things. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the pandemic and I'm a, um, a dedicated listener to the judge John Hodgman show. And I know last year you were very open about how, you know, stressful your, the situation at home was and, and work and you were recording from home with three kids, two dogs, the landscaper was going on in the background. You know, I forget the name of the, the what you guys call it, the, the, uh, yeah, Hodgman the, came the, up with a name yeah. for <laughs> Um, besides it being stressful, what did you learn about yourself, particularly as a father and your family in general? Like, what did you learn about yourself and your family during that time? 
Well, I mean, in that period of time, I had my own father die. I lost a couple of other people who were very close to me, none, none to COVID, but um, uh, some important people in my life. And my kids went through challenges in their lives that I never could have imagined. And not just that I never could have imagined the specifics of. I mean, obviously, I right. never sat around thinking like, what if there's a pandemic and it has horrible consequences for my family? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Things that I never imagined the scale of. And, you know, I certainly would not if I had it to do over again, do it this way. Like I learned a lot. I, there's yeah. no way in hell <laughs> I would, I would do it again. I think that it asked so much of me as a parent. And I think my wife, you know, my wife grew up in a loving home with two parents who loved each other and were very consistent and are remain in a loving and productive relationship and my sister and her siblings are all like in healthy and loving romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. And her sister who has kids, I think is, is an amazing parent. You know, my parents divorced when I was three and they both loved me very much. And I always knew that they loved me very much, but they had huge challenges to being parents. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they both were and are very good people, but had huge challenges. And so I had always kind of deferred to my wife because I just thought, well, <laughs> I grew up like taking the bus to school by myself, like not mm -hmm. the school bus, the regular bus mm -hmm. starting in second grade. <laughs> right. wow. My parents were in court with each other until I was 16, starting when they divorced when I was three. You know, oh. I just did, I was like, I don't know what parenting is. Right. So Teresa knows <laughs> I'll just follow behind her and sort of, uh, uh, what's that called when race cars get behind each other to oh, go oh, drafting, uh, drafting. Yeah. Drafting. yeah. Drafting. I'll just yeah. draft behind her. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife is amazing. And she's also the kind of person who within reasonable limits is able to get energy from caring for other people. Whereas I, as a, as a half only child, half much, much, much older sibling, my, I have two half brothers who are much younger than mm. I and, you know, two abandonee parents, like my solution to everything, like my base internal solution to everything is to go in my room and read a book mm. or go for a walk to buy a soda at the corner store. <laughs> These are the only emotional coping techniques I have. And get some Topps baseball cards, right? Yes. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Garbage Pail Kids. Oh, perfect, um, yes. And so these are activities that I was doing by myself starting when I was about seven. Yeah. So um, I just kind of followed behind my wife. The situation was such that there was no way that my wife could... I mean, I want to be clear that I think I was a good and actively participatory parent before, mm -hmm. but um, the weight was far too big for my wife to even, like she would have been crushed underneath it, even yeah. with my normal good dad amount of help. So right. what it has asked me is to hang in there with the things that make me uncomfortable about parenting and the difficult parts of parenting way past my point of discomfort. Right. And um, 
and I have grown a lot in so doing. And my relationships with my kids have grown a lot. I mean, I'm sure it's the same with yeah, with you guys. Like when your kids are home with you all the time, and you know, I wasn't going to an office or anything, even for the little bits of work that I was able to do. You have more relationship with them, but there were horrible, horrible, horrible traumas. So it's also like now a significant portion of my parenting energy is dedicated towards managing my <laughs> post-traumatic stress. <Yeah. laughs> so something that my dad would know about as a yeah. 100% disabled by service-related post-traumatic stress yeah. guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh and I also lost our father. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your, about losing Thanks. your dad. And, and um, sorry about that. Yeah. My, my dad too was, you know, was an old school guy. You know, not a mean guy, but definitely from the old school way of just sort of, you know, he was into cars and he grew up in the 50s and 60s and, you know, smoke lucky strikes. And that was that was it. I have a 10 year old as well, also a 14 year old. And as I'm getting older, I'm I'm, also, I'm 42 and, and there's some things about my dad that I'm, oh, yeah, I, I'm doing this like my dad or I never thought I'd act this way or, or anything. Is there anything like that with, with your father? I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, the way you approach fatherhood. Yeah. My, you know, my dad, uh, was of that same generation. My dad was born in the early forties during the war, but he was in most ways, not an old school guy. I mean, my father was a professional activist. He was Mm. in the veterans peace movement for most of his life. He was, an organizer, a fundraiser. He was in recovery for almost all of my life. You know, he he was in many ways a very new school kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I think that ultimately, though, as with my mother, like w- with both my parents, like who they were in the circumstances of their lives, ultimately in ways that I wouldn't be inclined to say were their fault per se, really affected their ability to be effective parents. Mm. So I think in in a lot of ways, like, A, as I said, they always loved me. My, I always knew my father loved me. He hugged me. He told me he loved me. He said I should go to therapy. Um, <laughs> uh, all, all of those kinds of things. But, you know, my father also had severe post-traumatic stress disorder. So... Mm you know, he would become incredibly paranoid or fly off the handle or, you know, he would become completely unreasonable. Like it, I just gave up trying to have arguments with him. You know, he was also in recovery and he was obsessed. You know, he had done so many drugs and been an alcoholic and he was, he couldn't wrap his head around the idea that I didn't do those things. <laughs> so like among other things, you know, he used to be, he used to obsess over my migraine headache medication and like, think like, wow, God, you gotta be, you gotta be careful. I use this shit, man. You know, <laughs> and it's like, well, the other choice is like pain until I cry and vomit. So <laughs> it, it was a very mixed bag. I think the thing that I have noticed about myself, that's a lot like my dad is that my dad was a very companionable person. He was a person that loved to laugh and he wasn't funny per se himself, but he he had he had a pretty sophisticated sense of humor and loved to laugh. He loved it when we made fun of him and he was, you know, like 
I, I heard from a number of people at the church that he went to in the year or so after he died who like found me to tell me like, I wasn't really close with your dad, but I just wanted to tell you how much I admired him because, you know, he would speak at church. And I once remember that there was a time when the church, which is this very, very, I mean, you know, it's not a political organization, but culturally extremely lefty Episcopalian church in San Francisco, there was this big discussion because some parishioners wanted to open a food bank or a food pantry. And there was some pushback because there wasn't like a side area of the church. It would have to be in the main rotunda. And they were worried about shit getting messed up and stolen or something. My dad kind of, I think he may have even spoken during services and just gave everybody the business and said, what's the point of having a fucking church if you can't give poor people Mm -hmm. food? Wow. And I heard about a lot of things like that, you know, but, you know, also a lot of those people weren't very close to my dad because there weren't a lot of people that were very close to my dad because my dad had lost one of his brothers when he was very young and lost his other brother to mental illness also when he was very young. So one of his brothers died, I think in his late twenties and one of his brothers was schizophrenic and was institutionalized in his early twenties. And he had been through a war and was not surrounded by people who knew what that meant. And so one of the things that I noticed about him spending time with my kids is he adored my children. Like he loved my children more than words can express. Like he would just get on the floor and watch them and just, you could just see him. He would just sit there for an hour, you know? But I think he also, you know, was a workaholic who struggled to spend that same time and give that same energy to me or to my brothers. And I know that like almost the only piece of actual advice he ever gave me was don't work too hard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, just like straight up advice. He told me that a couple of times. He was just like, Jesse, I want to tell you something. Don't work too hard. And I think that for me, like going through the pandemic and also just being with my wife and learning from my wife and having three kids, so having three shots at it. One of the things that has grown is my ability to be with my kids in their world for long periods of time. My mother, who's an absolutely incredible human being, if you're talking to her, you're in her world. (laughs) 10,000, 100,000%. I don't mean to suggest she's a, you know, she's a narcissist or something like that. I think she's just a Klieg lamp of a human being. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she might be neurodivergent in some way. We started doing this kind of therapy with one of my kids called Floor Time. There's two main kinds of therapy for neurodivergent kids. One is called ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. And that is something like what you might find at that the vice principal at an elementary school does. It's you take a look at what the inputs and outcomes are and of behaviors, what behaviors are desirable, what behaviors aren't. You reward the ones that are. You know, you don't necessarily punish the ones that aren't, but not far from it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people who are autistic consider that to be somewhere on a 
these are good people doing their best and helping families. But um, a lot of people who are autistic consider it to be somewhere on a spectrum between denying them their humanity by, you know, basically giving them Skittles to pretend like they're not autistic on a down to torture. And this other modality called floor time is basically about almost entirely about emotional regulation. And what it requires is that when a child's dysregulated, you don't try and stop them. You join them. And in joining them, you, through joining them, show them that it's possible to return to regulation. So whereas in ABA, one of the big strategies is if you see your kid heading towards trouble, you head it off at the pass and say, we're going this direction, not that direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, distraction or, or redirection. And in floor time, it's you join your kid where they are and you are with them through the tunnel to the other side because otherwise they can't learn that there is a way to make it through the tunnel to the other side. And your goal is to show them through, they call it co-regulation, joining them in regulation, that you can get to the other side and, and over the course of years, make it so that they can do the things they need to do to take care of themselves to make it through upset and dysregulation, right? Mm-hmm. And that requires an extra, that's something that we had never done before until the pandemic. It requires extraordinary fortitude. Mm-hmm is still very hard for me because I want to just say, no, this is a rule. I'm going in the other room. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> because I don't like, it's hard for me in my own life to understand that there's right. another end of the tunnel when mm-hmm. I'm upset. Right. Because I never had an example or any support or, you know. Right. So I have learned this skill that my father never had And my mother barely had, but didn't really, which is to hang in with my kids when shit is messy and with lower stakes to hang in with my kids when shit is boring to me. (laughs) I'm so, so bad at doing stuff that's boring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have a problem looking at my phone when things are boring and I know that's not, and my son gets pissed off at me when doing that too, so... When I had a, I had a friend at my kid's elementary school who had a kid who is on the autism spectrum. He's a social worker. And I was talking to him about neurodiversity and neurodivergence. And he's giving me all this advice and teaching me all this stuff. And you get a lawyer, all this different <laughs> stuff, right? And um, one of the things that I will never forget him saying is there is a standard impression of the classroom aides who the school district assigns to kids with major learning differences and neurodivergences. And that is just a person with their hand in front of their face flicking through their phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I teach in a public school, so I, you know, we've seen a range of, you know, that kind of stuff as well as just being, having the person who can like, just again, do like the ABA style, just like we're going to stop them. And, yeah. you know, and I'd never heard of floor time before, but I know that my, my school does a lot of positive behavior stuff. They've done a lot of things to try and they've been successful in getting kids who are neurodivergent to 
you know, change their ways. Though, I mean, personally, I'm, I'm going to look into this floor time thing and see if my administration would be interested in doing it because I've never heard about it before and I work with wide range of kids too. So thank you for bringing that up. I do yeah. Here in California, um, a lot of developmental services come through a institution called the Regional Center, which is a state operation that provides developmental services. At the Regional Center, you can go down there and you got to say, I would prefer to get floor time, but um, it is... It is at this point, you know, fully, fully vetted, you know, they have to, they have to do a lot of value demonstrations, a lot of AB testing. And one of the things about ABA is that it is very AB testing friendly, (laughs) but there is that kind of fundamental philosophical element, which is if a kid is on the autism spectrum, are you teaching them to pretend not to be autistic uh, or are they teach, are you teaching them uh, the skills they need to be autistic in a world where most people are not, you know, that's a very different set of skills. There's overlap, but it's a different set of skills. You know, like what are you teaching a child to do when they need proprioceptive input? What are you teaching a child to do when they're sent to feeling sensory overwhelmed? Like all those kinds of things. One other thing that I listened to the Judge John Hodgman show, my wife is a dedicated listener to One Bad Mother, which your wife, Teresa, is a co-host of, as you said at the beginning. And one thing that my wife and I have noticed, you know, especially with One Bad Mother, but even on, you know, the Judge John Hodgman show, you guys are very open about your kids. I mean, you talk about them, you know, in all different facets. And for me as a, as a parent, you know, even just with this podcast and you know, as a technology teacher, I try to keep my kid off the internet, try to, you know, be protective of them and just, you know, for whatever reason. So with both of you, you know, what was the conversation or what are the conversations you have about what you want to tell the public about your kids or is it just pretty much everything is open? It's definitely not everything is open. I mean, what I was just open with you about is about as open as I've been about issues in my family that are much, much larger than what I just uh, described. (laughs) Wow. So it's a little chunk. I think that there's a couple things. One, we don't put pictures of our kids on the internet publicly just because, among other things, one of my kids is transgender and, you know, I just don't want people to be able to track her down. I haven't been threatened with anything other than CPS. And I'm a pretty marginal public figure, thank God. I'm not, you know, Shirley's Theron or Twain Wade or whatever. But um, there's people out there. But also just, you know, would love for them to be able to make their own decisions about that when they are hopefully 17. (laughs) (laughs) When will I allow- to be on social media or something like that. Yeah, like at what point will I allow my children onto social media? Ideally, never. Right. Just be like, don't go into a business where you have to be on Twitter. Yes. Uh, Don't become a public figure or journalist. (laughs) So that that was one thing. Yeah. I know that, you know, I can't speak for Teresa, but for me, I try not to tell any story about my kids that they would be upset if they knew that I had told that story. Um, at least since, at least since they reached sentience, you know, at least since like age three and a half or four, my kind of my standard is that I used to go to the company picnic of my aunt worked at the natural resources defense council. We'd go to the company picnic every year with her on angel Island uh, in the San Francisco Bay. And every year people would come up to me and talk to me about the time that I went when I was four. And then I came up 
I went down to the beach and then I came back to where the picnic was and said, I pooped on the beach like a dog. <laughs> so the, <laughs> I pooped on the beach like a dog standard is that I was four, but I feel like if I was eight, I would be upset that the other people at NRDC knew about that. <laughs> um, so I, I try not to tell any anything like that. I don't talk about anything that is more than superficially amusing. I try not to talk about things that are their personal experiences that are not my personal experiences. Like right. I try and talk from my own perspective about my own life and leave them out of it as much as possible. Unless they say something funny, in which case <laughs> all bets are off. <laughs> the Frankie anecdotes are fantastic. Yeah. By the way. My youngest child, Frankie says some extraordinary things. <laughs> it's a very vivid mind and a very, very, uh, <laughs> very, very <laughs> pronounced speech delay. That really combine into a magical wonderland of funny <laughs> things being said. The funny things that your two and a half year old says, just add a four year old's intellect and imagination to that. And like, that's where my kid is at. Like my kid has the voice of a two and a half year old and the, <laughs> the mind and she considers me to be very stupid. So that, and then, you know, I mean, like the, the biggest thing is that, you know, my oldest kid is transgender and... You know, I had talked about her on Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy show, for many years using her uh, birth name and obviously the pronouns that we had presumed were her pronouns. You know, when she told us, you know, there was a period where we were, you know, six months, nine months where we were like, play this slow, see how it goes. So there, I would say maybe there was like four-ish months where we didn't say anything publicly. Then there was another five-ish months or six months where we were still being like, yeah, gender nonconforming, we'll see. Hmm. Um, but she was very consistent that she was transgender. So we were like, okay, well, I guess this is sticking. And because I had used her old name and pronouns on the show and I didn't want to continue to use them and I thought it would be weird if I just never referred to her again, <laughs> and I think Teresa was in the same position, we're like, well, I mean, we're just going to say that this is what happened. She came out to us and she's a girl and we're just going to use her preferred pronouns and her preferred name. And beyond that, the main thing that I've talked about publicly is what I think might be helpful to people who are in the same position or people who could end up in the same position or people who might be close to somebody who ends up being in the same position and doesn't know which is just kind of the broad basics of gender for kids and how to care for kids that are gender nonconforming. Like what mm. is the things that the evidence supports and that best practices are when people attack me, you know, I, I block people who do things that I think will be trauma triggers to trans people. I know. Right. If they ask me, unkindly phrased questions, I decided a long time ago that what I would do is, you know, on Twitter, I would, when I had the energy, I don't always, but hmm. when I had the energy, I would quote tweet them and say, well, it works this way and not, not be picking fights with them and not trying to convert them from being bigots or whatever but just publicly show what it's actually like 
what the actual science and best practices are so that people can see that there is like a decent responsible version of how to respond to this situation or prepare for this situation in your family. Right. And that that person being a jerk is being a jerk, but you know, who knows, maybe they will change their mind. And if they don't, the 50,000 people that follow me on Twitter will have learned a little something. And from that, you know, people, people DM me and tell me that they're, you know, just to give one example, there's a, a very long time Jordan Jesse Go listener who's a pediatrician in Ohio. He, maybe Indiana, he sent me a message a couple of years ago and he said, hey, it's Dave. I think you know I'm a pediatrician. You talking about your daughter really led me to think about this stuff and I never had. And he said, now when I'm treating patients who are old enough to be treated separately from their parents, I check in with them about where they are in their gender identity and their preferred pronouns and if they need any help or support. It's fantastic. And, you know, I just think, you know, Dave probably has, you know, three or 400 patients, 500 patients. I don't know how many patients pediatricians have. And I just think among those kids, there's five, 10, 20 who are gender nonconforming where he lives Maybe a few of them are supported by their parents, but probably most of them aren't, or they have never had someone ask them. Right. You know, I have a buddy who's an adult trans woman who grew up in, she grew up in Cleveland and like, she's a sophisticate. I don't think her parents are jerky bigots or anything as far as I know, but she was just like, yeah, I had just never met a transgender person and thought I was broken. Hmm. Like she didn't even know she was transgender. She just thought there was something horribly fundamentally wrong with her until she was an adult, you know, in her early twenties when she met some trans people and was like, wait, what? Oh my God, that makes sense. (laughs) Amazing. And like, I just think a few kids who were like her probably get asked by Dr. Dave. It's not even like all parents who are like my kids transgender. It's like, Parents who say, I discuss this with my kid so that they know that there's different gender identities in the world. Right. And that gender is something that is deep inside you. It's not your genitals. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, people who say, I'm a teacher, people who say, you know, I've heard from a couple of people who said they needed their niece or nephew had to move in with them. Wow. You know, and they said, and they said, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. Like I was supportive. Like, it's not like, you know, whatever. I went to pride or, you know what I mean? Sure. I never really thought about how it might touch my life until I talked to some people in my life about it. Yeah, it goes deeper. Because it was on my mind and I had some, you know. And so that is ultimately kind of how I decided that. So I don't, it's not like I'm going to go say like, you know, congratulations. Here's some pictures of my kid getting gender confirmation surgery. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, uh I try and talk about her like I would a normal kid, you know, like my friend, the way that my friend, my friend, Jimmy Pardo is a podcaster and he has a kid named Oliver. And I'm just like, I, I would like to just talk about my kid the way that Jimmy talks about Oliver, you know, like yes. it's a person that lives in your house. Sometimes they say something funny. Sometimes you were on a trip somewhere like to the museum and something funny happened and they were there and it would be hard to leave them out of the story. Mm, (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think it's meaningful for people. And like, I want to be clear, like, I don't think that what I have done around gender 
as a parent is extraordinary. I think we're on the right side of history, but like, I think I did what any parent who had some understanding of this and didn't want to be a jerk about it and had some cultural context for it would do. Like, I don't think what I'm doing is special, but, and I talked for a minute, I had Jamie Lee Curtis on Bullseye the other day, and uh, she has a transgender kid who came out publicly, publicly a year ago or something. And... I talked to her off microphone, like one of the things that happens is that if you support your kid publicly, and not, not anything more than you would say for your other kids, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I'm not like, I'm proud my kid is transgender, you know, like all kids should be transgender. She's a real champion. I'm just the same kind of like, oh, she's playing little league. Right. <laughs> right. I hear from people, adult trans people. And just especially young adult trans people who say, I don't know you and your family, but just hearing some, you know, straight cis people say my kid is transgender and that's fine with me is more than my parents could ever manage. And you know, it just means a lot to me to hear someone say that, just to have an example of a parent in the world who says that. If we hadn't already talked about my daughter publicly using her old pronouns in name, you know, we we might never have said anything publicly because she might have preferred to be stealth. And, you know, at the school she goes to, like, she's out in the sense that like, I don't think she has any particular interest in hiding that she's transgender. She knows she's transgender and is totally fine with that. But it's not like there was like a class meeting and she's old enough now that they're not seeing each other's privates. So I bet a bunch of her peers don't know that she's trans. So Mm. um, just by happenstance, I'm probably some do, but like, you know, some kids prefer to be stealth in an ideal world, we would have been able to give her that choice, but there wasn't, there like wasn't that. (laughs) That was not one of the possible paths. (laughs) So doing our best, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, first off, we applaud you for everything you have done. And, you know, for me as a listener to you and my wife as a listener to your wife's show, we've definitely been educated in many different ways about parenting and and in the situation. So thank you for that. I do want to ask you though, what has been your favorite moment of being a parent? Well, I mean, honestly, one of them is the times that I've gotten to see my kids with my parents. That's really, that's really been special. My, my dad with my kids, especially when they were babies and toddlers, Hmm. just seeing how much he loved them. And my mom, who has a very, very special relationship with my uh, my oldest, and just I think they both are just live in a world where very few people get them, and they both have they talk past each other a little bit sometimes, but they both have such a great time being themselves and loving each other. Um, so that's one thing. I'll say that like, you know, this is a silly thing, but like I, I've always, since I was six or seven, loved baseball and, you know, at one point thought I might 
make a career in baseball, not as a baseball player. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't the worst baseball player, but there was, there was no question by the time I was 10 that I was not going to become a professional baseball player. But during the many years between first grade and high school, when I could read adult books, but um, didn't have to pay attention in class at all, I just read adult baseball books all the time. I like just <laughs> read so many baseball books. Like I'm just total baseball obsessive. And, and that, that slowed same, a little bit totally. when I, yeah, was, that sort of slowed a little bit when I went to arts high school where no one was a jock or <laughs> no one was even a, a, a nerd about jock things. Yeah. And when I went to UC Santa Cruz <laughs> <laughs> and uh, afterwards when I didn't have cable. So it, it slowed in, in my in my mid to late teens and in early 20s. But then I think in recent years, and especially, I mean, quintuply during the pandemic, you know, it's a real comfort thing for me. Yeah. And it's the thing about which I am the most, you know, nerdy and passionate in the mm. category of things that don't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, like I... I love movies, but you know, my friend, my friend Elliot Kalen from the flop house wants to, uh, you know, he was, he was running his, he was running his son, Sammy through a curriculum of every Marx brothers movie in, in chronological order. Nice. And I thought that was pretty great because Sammy was on board, but like probably wouldn't do that with my kids. I would mostly just be like, can we watch a good movie instead of a bad movie? But with baseball, um, a couple things, my daughter, before the pandemic did this thing called um, Girls Play LA, which is like a equity program in the Parks and Rec Department where mm-hmm. they have, you know, almost no cost programs that are not teams, but are like clinic programs for girls um, with coaches. And she had never played any sports at all and was not naturally gifted at it, but was excited to do it and had a wonderful coach. Um, who's just really, you know, just what you wish a, a guy that works at the park would be just a peaceful guy who loved sports and was really patient and helpful. And she and I went to a couple ball games together, including one in Oakland with me and my brother, actually both my brothers, I think, and my dad. And my dad, my dad was a, was an A's fan. He lived in, he lived in Oakland for 20 years or something. And, and he was actually from Kansas city when the A's played oh, wow. in Kansas city. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, the Coliseum is still the same stadium. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's even leakier, but besides that, it's still the same <laughs> yeah. place. And, you know, I went out there and my dad was, was sick by then and he had progressive dementia. So um, he was able to be there with us and like connect and stuff, but he wasn't, didn't have any medium term memory. I have this frame program on my, I mean, within almost within arm's reach of me where I'm sitting right now of this game that I went to when I was 10 with my dad and his dad, this Giants game. And we all signed the program. And I remember thinking, why are we signing the program? And now I'm just like so grateful to have that reminder of them. And, you know, me and my dad and, my daughter and my brothers all showed up at this game and we didn't know it, but it was A's Hall of Fame night. And so all the players that I had watched with my dad when I was a kid, going to games on 
we usually had secondhand tickets. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, Ricky Henderson and, and Mark McGuire mm-hmm. and everybody except Jose Canseco. <laughs> my Gallego. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. My yeah. Gallego. Oh my gosh. That was my, he was one of my faves. I was a second baseman. So <laughs> oh, second nice. and third baseman. So you were lucky to live to that, that A's era, that, that late A's bash brothers. They it were was great. incredible. It was incredible. incredible. Ricky Henderson was, and still oh, yeah. is my favorite player Amazing. of all time, yeah. even though I'm a Giants fan. Oh yeah. Um, Amazing. I'm a but, Yankees fan. I grew up, we're the same age and he was of course on the Yankees before the A's. Oh wow. One of Ricky's batting goals. He was the best. But anyway, the, having that moment and you know, my dad really connecting to it and feeling comfortable there, even though he was somewhat demented by that point. Yeah. And my daughter being there and just being happy to be there with us and eat hot dogs, you know, mm-hmm. much more recently in the past six or eight weeks, my son well, my son announced he was excited about baseball, which I didn't, I had not pushed it. Like I had pushed, don't be a Dodgers fan. Uh, <laughs> but I had no other, like I never pushed baseball on them at all. And, you know, I mean, among other things, the, our TV wasn't in the main part of the house. So if I was watching the game, I was off in another room. So there wasn't mm-hmm. even the game on, you know. And Oscar's one of Oscar's best buddies, actually Elliot's son, Sammy got really interested in baseball and Oscar followed suit. And it just, so, you know, it all worked out nicely. The, the giants are having an amazing, unbelievable year. And we don't live in the same place as the, as where the giants play. So my hundred dollar a year MLB.tv subscription <laughs> means I can watch almost every giants game. And, uh, so he's gotten really into baseball and, and he, through a lot of hard work, I found a fall ball league for him to play in. Parks and Rec department websites have not improved since <laughs> no. I was no. playing park league baseball since yeah, 1996. Definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. They might as well just tell you to, to visit their gopher site, fire up your <laughs> Netscape navigator and yep. um, head to geocities.com slash LA parks slash yeah. uh, 2004-2698. <laughs> And seeing him being able to practice with him and Sammy, because Elliot is, is not a drunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Elliot, Elliot's really doing his best to hang in there on this Sammy being into baseball thing. Uh, and getting being able to practice with those guys and then see them on their team with teammates and playing in games. I mean, these are not these are not games right. that matter where they keep track score and stuff. But just getting to see them have that special experience of of playing a team sport and it being the one that I'm able to help them with (laughs) is uh, is really amazing. And it's nice because it's like there's been so much high stakes shit in my life as a parent that the fact that baseball doesn't matter. I'm so grateful for that fact. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that it is just some bullshit that doesn't matter. They just, they get to, you know, Oscar, my my son who's on a team gets to run around some, Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. you know, like that's what it gets us to run around and it's something learn perseverance, where learn teamwork, all that yeah, stuff. If he wants to know what book he should read, uh, great news. Here's a copy of the year of the boar and Jackie Robinson. Let's do it. <laughs> Um, just to change the topic a little bit, um, although I love talking about eighties baseball for sure. I, I can go on that all, all night. <laughs> Um, we want to talk about a picture you recently posted on Twitter where you said tonight we are celebrating dad time. The creator has a master plan, peace and happiness for every dad. 
and it showed a huge bookcase full of vinyl records. And this podcast, although it's about parenting, a lot of it is on our love of music and our recent obsession of collecting vinyl. Yes. We're all back. So we didn't know you were a vinyl collector. Um, When did that start? And yeah. Uh, Definitely since high school for me. Nice. I am now. I have a vintage store and have been, my mom is an antiques dealer and have kind of been in that business as a sideline to my main career since I was a teen. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so I was in thrift stores every day and I mean, literally every day. And so I buy records when they were there. I was friends with the woman who was in charge of the records at the Salvation Army by my house. And she would tell me when they had gotten records in and she would bring them out for me uh, cool. after school. Awesome. So since then, there was a long period where I didn't buy a lot of records. And that was the time between when I came home from college and bought my first house, which is like a 10-year period. There were a few relapses in there. But the main thing was that I had to move my records a few times. And I was like, fuck. That's such a chore. Lord, is this Oh, my God. I And I didn't have somewhere, you know, like it would be in an apartment. I'd be like, I don't know where yeah. I'm going to set up my stereo even. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, but I, I moved into this house just a couple months ago. And it's a Queen Anne, 1888. Mm. Built in 1888, rebuilt in 1895. So I had always just wanted to have built-in shelves. And I, um, (laughs) this is going to sound braggy and that's only because it is, but I'm friends with Nick Offerman. So I emailed Nick Offerman. Oh, he's the best. And I said, who's your, who's your cabinetry guy? Like, who's the guy? And he hooked me up with this women's woodworking collective. And I, I messaged them and said, look, I've always wanted to have a lot like built-in library shelves in my house. And now I have a house that could totally have them because anybody do period work. And she said, I'll let you know if anyone does. We're a collective. So, you know, pass the conch, Um, (laughs) you know, whatever. (laughs) We are the 99%. And um, this guy emails me. I'm like, I thought this was a women's woodworking (laughs) collective. This guy emails me, his name is Max. And he goes, Hey, my name's Max. Uh, I know it's weird that I'm a dude in a women's woodworking collective, but it's just kind of how it worked out. And I am the only one in the collective right now who's doing cabinet work, but I would totally love to take this job. Uh, Also, sorry if this is weird, but I listened to Jordan Jesse go. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) well, that is, I mean, it's weird that you listen to Jordan Jesse go. (laughs) Very few do. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I, we built those shelves and it was like, just so you know, honey. This is going to be a my fucked up priority for our house. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it should be. Well, that was like the first thing I, I did as well. I bought a house a year and a half ago and scoped out the basement and made a whole vinyl area. I don't have a huge collection, but I was yeah. like, it's time. I haven't. I never had space for a stereo, like a full stereo, and everything. And now I have. A Feels whole good to do that. And stuff. Yeah. That was all yeah. I needed. I'm happy. Just give me my yeah, little so area. I'm, I'm not like I'm a good. stereo. I'm not like a. You're not like Marin with his his. Or uh, like Macintosh, or yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'll get there though. Probably. Well, my stereo is better than the last one of Marin's stereos that I saw, <laughs> but that was a while ago. I bet he's bought it. He's gotten richer since then. So right. And I don't know if you know this about Mark, but he can be a little compulsive. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Mark Marin rules. He's the greatest. 
but yeah, like I, I'm, I'm not a perfect sound forever guy. I'm not an audiophile, but I do have a dope ass stereo and some fucking banging speakers, nice. some giant JBLs that I bought at an estate auction. Nice. And all my stuff is kind of from the seventies. Cool. Good way. It's pretty. And so when I posted that picture in answer to your not question, I had used a small amount of drugs. One of my children, the one I was responsible for putting to sleep was asleep, and my wife was with the other two, getting them to sleep. And I was listening to Pharaoh Sanders. Oh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's a, that's a lifestyle for dads. It's it's where, a, that's yeah. that's you, your escape. Perfect. That's your escape. You eat a gummy, you sit on the sofa, and you point <laughs> the two giant speakers towards you. Yes. And you listen to the creator has a master plan. Yes. You listen to Pharaoh Sanders doing his spiritual yodeling. <laughs> yeah I know too that you're like at least from my Twitter follow of you uh, you're really into hip hop and it seems like you're into funk and soul like what is your what is your bag when it comes to music or what are your bigger albums for sure yeah I mean that's the lane um, there are tiny areas of the world of the music of the whites that I have dipped my toe into I really like Randy Newman. Nice. Interesting. And I, I'm trying to think of other white people I like. <laughs> Randy uh, Newman I need to like dive into. He's he's definitely. There are a, others. Yeah. I kind of like Steely Dan. Mm, um, nice. We're, we're talking about that. There's lately. like, you know, I like yeah. like Van Morrison, but that doesn't count. Yeah. Um, Steely Dan comes up a lot on this pod because they oh, have I'm, this like resurgence. Yeah, yeah I'm not surprised at all to hear that. This dad, yeah. Your dad music show has a lot of Steely Dan. <laughs> surprising. Time. Surprising. Uh, but yeah, I grew up listening to soul music. Both my parents were soul music listeners. Um, my mom is also a really big jazz fan and, you know, rolled in jazz circles in the 60s. So that was kind of the context in which I grew up. And I grew up in a in an inner city neighborhood where rap music was the main thing. Yep. So that also. So I would say like... It, I probably listened the most to soul music, like classic soul music from the 60s and 70s. And... Yeah, I mean, my my favorite records of all time are like Fresh by Sly and the Family Stone. Nice. Uh, the first two Bill Withers albums. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I love all the, that's the one, those are the ones. Uh, Blowout Comb by Diggable Planets. That's like the one that oh, I yeah. like, I got that when I was 12 or 13 when it came out mm -hmm. and just listened to it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's like the one of those, you know, like I listened to, Never mind a lot then too, but right. yep. I don't like think like God. I wish I was listening to Nevermind right now. <laughs> you know, I'm not like oh, I wish I was listening to the Spin Doctors second album that for some reason I had. <laughs> uh, who even knows where do they even come from? The CDs that you have when you're 13, just someone yeah, gives exactly. them to you at a birthday party. I don't even know. Yep. Yeah, uh, that Dickwell Planets record is is my favorite. Shot, they can't, won't, don't. 
block to the fifth of my brain. Sing songs called survival on the meanest arrival. Score the bass hit with my bugged out click. It's the bug, give me love for original script. Sip the fruit juice, it's kinda rough. Seven's never bluff, I had enough. Eleven. I have a lot of like deep feelings about underground rap music from the Bay Area in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I really love The Coup. Uh, I really love uh, Black Alicious and Latyrix. Ah, uh, awesome. You know, I've, I've been thinking about those a lot because, you know, Gift of Gab yeah. and uh, yeah. and Zumbi from Zion and I both passed away this year very unexpectedly. So I've been thinking about that stuff that that I really loved. And, you know, like... Black star, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty basic, you know, I'm not, <laughs> but, uh, oh, you know, something that you might not have picked, you might not expect to be one of my five or 10 favorite albums of all time from that list, which all sounds pretty white and nerdy is, uh, Devin, the dude, uh, Devin, the dude's, I think my favorite rapper of all time. Okay. Mm. Um, I'll check him and, out. uh, his album, his his first two albums, it made a number of great records, but his first two albums are just perfect. And he's just a, he's a rapper from Houston. On uh, he was in his heyday on on rap a lot, uh, the label with the Ghetto Boys and Scarface and so forth. He sings a little and raps, and just like all he really raps about is having sex and weed. <laughs> um, and he's such a sweet guy. So obviously a sweet guy and so chill and funny, but like mostly I think it's that he's a sweet guy. Like it's like not a lot of rappers who rap a lot about pussy rap about it in a friendly way, (laughs) but like, you know, he has a line, he has a line where he goes, I smoke weed, I drink brew. It's all I rap about because shit, that's all that I do. (laughs) (laughs) It's being honest. And yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, like he he has this he has a song called "What a Job" that's from one of his kind of mid period records. That's him, Snoop, and Andre from Outkast, and it's them rapping about what a pleasure and a privilege it is to be a rapper. But it's all for the cause. So I'm gonna continue to MC and smoke weed. You know I'm rolling up another's whistle, listening to the beat again. Drinking, but we're concentrating, smoking another sweet again. Steadily rewinding, trying to make some hot shit. Oh, what a job this is. And Andre has a beautiful verse about, you know, meeting somebody that his records meant a lot to. And I mean, it's just a beautiful, it's just a beautiful song about gratitude, you know? And then, you know, he also raps a lot about his dick, you know? <laughs> He has a great song called Lackville 79 that's, uh, the chorus goes, I'm rolling, cars not stolen, probably never will be, it's much too old, I'm smoking weed and feeling fine in my Lackville 79. And then the whole song is just about how shitty his car is. (laughs) 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 And how that's fine. (laughs) Now I'm going to turn on some hip hop later. Yeah. Yeah. Go listen to Devin. Go listen to the dude. I'm gonna check out Devin for yeah, sure. Definitely yeah, definitely. So Jesse, thank thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. You uh, rock, this man. was amazing. This was fantastic. You know, thank you for everything you've been doing in the podcasting world and you know, on Twitterverse and everything. Thank you so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave everybody with uh just like a life tip that I learned from my parents. 
um, one of the best life tips that they, one of the best life lessons that they taught me, which is you should probably listen to Nina Simone more. Just listen to (laughs) Nina more. Yeah. No matter what the circumstances, you should probably be listening to Nina more. 7,000 albums and they're all perfect. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see Thanks for listening to this episode, and special thanks again to Jesse Thorne for coming on to the show. We hope you found the interview as enlightening and enjoyable as we did. If you want to follow Jesse on social media, you can find him on Twitter at Jesse Thorne and on Instagram at put.this.on. We also highly recommend that you go to MaximumFun.org and check out the amazing lineup of podcasts that are on his podcast network, Maximum Fun including the three shows mentioned during the interview, Jordan Jesse Go, Judge John Hodgman, and One Bad Mother. Whether this is your first time or your 20th time, we really appreciate everyone checking out the podcast and would love for you to subscribe to the show. And if you like or even love the podcast, go ahead and give us an honest review. Or, you know, just tell a friend about us. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter, both at DadRocksPod as well as on Facebook, where you can just look us up by searching up Dad Rocks with an exclamation point at the end. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. If you want to check out the music you've heard on this episode in full, we have a Spotify playlist which should be linked in the podcast description. Once again, thanks for listening today, and remember, Dads, you rock. Thank you.